it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And thanks to our malt mates at Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. Well, this week, the business of making it, as I catch up with Brick Lane's Paul Balker. We last spoke with Paul, together with his head brewer, John Selton, back in November 2018, not long after the celebrity-backed brewery launched. Over the last three years, it has grown drastically, both with its partner brands that it brews under contract and its own Brick Lane brands. Recently, the business announced a $50 million capital raise to further fund expansion, putting it in the same realm as Stone and & Wood and Mighty Craft. For all of its growth and undeniable beer quality, Brick Lane's corporate feel, as exhibited by its growth, has always left some engaged craft beer consumers feeling a little unengaged in the brand. And in this conversation, I speak with Paul about growth, brand, engagement, and the role and meaning of independence in building a brewing company. It's a fascinating chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Paul Balker, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Great to be here, Matt. Matt, it's nice to uh, actually be have you in what passes for a studio around here. It's just still too early in the morning to actually have a beer. It, it, it is, mate. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful spot, and there's, there's beers around all the tables, but no, I'm not, I'm not tempted at 10.30 in the morning. No, no. Last time we spoke, uh, November 2018, not long after Brick Lane uh, opened, um, and refer everyone back to, to that chat about some of the, the, the background to it, but... In the last week, you guys have announced a big $50 million capex in the, uh, in, in the lingo expansion. Things have obviously been going well since we last spoke. Yeah, it's, um, yeah well, three years, uh, three years in August coming that we uh, pushed the first beer out of the brewery. And uh, I do remember that conversation, Matt. We had uh, you and Pete and uh, myself and John Selton down at the brewery. And at the time, we went through our grand vision of what we were building. And you know, we, we thought it was pretty ambitious launching in August with capacity of 2 million litres. And... Uh, that, that was sopped up really quickly uh, and it was always a plan to, to build the scale of the brewery over time and everything's been on track uh, and the latest expansion, you know, more than doubles where we're at at the moment, which is about 8 million litres. This is the an announcement that you're investing in new capacity um, on, on behind the existing brewery. So if you're doubling to 8 million litres, that means you're up around 4 million litres now? No, the, the other way. So we're doubling from 8 up oh, from Oh, from there. 8. Okay. Yeah, so the, and you probably remember the conversation, Matt, we had. And we were, I think when you were there, we had a bit of a walk around the brewery and it was, uh, we were producing beer, but it wasn't even quite finished at that point. Yes. So, um, and you would have remembered looking in the brewery, there was a lot of empty space and probably thought, Jesus, you know, what are they, what are they doing here? How are they going to fill this thing? Uh, but it's filled out pretty quickly and this latest expansion uh, adds in a second brew house. So currently we've got a 50 hectolitre Browcon brew house that can brew eight turns a day. Uh, we've got, actually we just saw all the photos last week of it leaving on the ship from Germany, uh, which is a 100 hectolitre Browcon. Highly optimised, so 12 turns a day at 100, 100 hectolitres. Wow, okay. So some serious capacity. Uh, the, the brewery and their design was all provisioned, so it slots in behind the existing brew house and we were also adding in, we've got 24 fermenters at the moment, we're adding in another 10 400 hectolitre fermenters as well as 
a number of upgrades around packaging. Uh, utilities have largely been upgraded. So as soon as the brew house arrives in September, by by, by Christmas, but we'll be well and truly um, up at 15 million plus, probably more like 20 million litres of work, work production capacity. You weren't eyeing off the 500 uh, hectolitre brewery from uh, West End Brewery in uh, South Australia when it came on? Yeah, we're, we're, we're ambitious, but that's, that's even a bit, maybe a bit big, too big a bite for us. Although, saying that, and I'm, I'm, you know, this is not giving away anything, but because uh, I'm sure a lot of people are looking at it, there's some really nice equipment there. So mm. uh, we'll, we'll always have a look over it and see what's there. But yeah, a, a 500 heck uh, Steinecker brew house is, um, <laughs> is a beautiful thing, but maybe too big and beautiful for us. Okay. Brick Lane does a, has a mix of your own brands and also contract brewing. So what's the mix there at the moment? Yeah, we usually run around a third of our own volume and two-third partner volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, And within that, we try to break it down a little bit as well. So uh, our own portfolio, which we we may get onto, um, is quite diverse in terms of uh, categories. So we we play across classic, across craft, um, soon across uh, non-alc, which, you know, we've had a few chats about that, as well as some other adjacencies. And then in our partner portfolio... We always try to keep a balance between uh, larger volume, bigger contracts, as well as, I guess, emerging um, craft independent breweries um, and those in between that are a bit more established but um, are either unable or, for business model reasons, don't want to invest in a larger scale brewery. So very, very well balanced portfolio. Actually, we might park that because we, 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 we'll, we'll talk about the whole independence and the whole production space. Let's keep going about the um, CapEx. Yeah, how does that work? You know, we, we see um, right across the industry at the moment, whether it's equity crowdfunding, hitting up you know existing partners, um, you know, private. When when you've got a business like yours and you've got some you know very well known people who are invested in it, where do you get the money from for for that level of you know like fifty million dollars? Isn't you know down the back of the uh, sofa money? Um, how do you go about getting that investment in the business when you expand? Yeah, so there's a few different ways and I guess it goes back to the philosophy of the business which is to build something that is long-term sustainable and that has a bunch of elements to it um, sustainability in the sense that a lot of people look at it in terms of ongoing efficiencies and good for the environment um, good for the community and the industry but the other one is to build a business model that is able to support and sustain itself long term so that means a few things to us Um, you know some people can build a brand without production that comes with risks and it's very difficult. We didn't want to do that. Uh, You can build a smaller brewery and then gradually add on or add in additional breweries. But that, again, comes with a lot of inefficiencies, some upsides around uh, targeting different communities. But long-term, it's a very difficult model to scale. Uh, So we wanted almost an infinitely scalable business. And and what that meant is when we looked at the funding model, we needed to choose um, a group of people to support us who also had a long-term vision that meant a broad base of investors um, rather than relying on a few individuals. Um, and it also meant investors that saw and bought into the long-term vision and weren't after a, you know, a three- or four-year exit plan, and, and that's never been what we're about. So all our investors, we were very selective. Uh, we've got about 40 of them, and they've been supportive all the way through. We've also got a, a debt facility um, with one of the major banks, and again, um, that funds a lot of our, a lot of our capex and the reason that we can do that, and it's not giving away any business secrets, but we've got a very um, a well-diverse portfolio. Um, we've got our own brand, which has national ranging across all the majors and is growing fairly significantly. 
But we've also got these long-term contracts with our partners and uh, when you're looking at debt funding, a bank likes to see that you've got stability in your, your income stream. So when we go through these big expansions, you know, we're able to fund some of it through debt underpinned by bankable contracts effectively um, and the other part through uh, investors and the key thing there is to obviously do what you say from the beginning, which we've always done. Um, we had a very clear five-year strategic plan which the investors bought into and which we're fulfilling and the other one is having investors who believe in your business and are pumped up by your business, which means constantly communicating with them and genuinely bringing them along for the ride. I was going to ask about that because on one hand, 40 investors helps you know spread that pressure you know uh, if you if you're in a small brewery there are three partners god forbid one of them has a divorce and you know needs to um you know liquidate their their holding and then it puts pressure on the other two or you know one of them just decides they want to do something else and suddenly you know that's a big upheaval to a to a small brewery um and i guess having 40 you've got that spread across more people but the flip side is you've got 40 different viewpoints and 40 different, you know, people with the vision that they have for the, for, for the business. And we've also seen some craft breweries with some wide shareholdings that have no direction as a result. How how do you juggle those two things and, you know, communicate and keep everybody on, on the same path? Yeah, I mean, the key thing is for us, we've got a, a very strong internal management team. Um, a number of those have been there since the very early days. Um, you know, obviously John, John Selton, who you spoke to, but also, you know, Alex in People, who's absolutely fantastic, some really good sales and marketing resource. And that core group of management are all completely aligned in what they want to achieve. Um, and then it's really a matter of making sure your investor base is, they understand the strategy and they're bought into it. The other big advantage that we've got is the investor base um, they don't, they don't work in the business in executive roles. They're not full-time. Uh, we've got an, a non-executive board of um, five non-executives and a, and a managing director, my role. Um, but out And they're all representatives of, of the shareholder group. So the shareholder group not only have a direct line into management to discuss how the business is going, but they also have a board that represents their interests. Um, the, the other big advantage when we pulled together the investor base is we wanted to make sure that uh, the investment was important to people, but it was also not a. Um, it's not sort of uh, going to put the food on the table every day. So we made it really clear that this is not a. You're not going to be receiving, you know, dividends. You're not going to be receiving an exit in three years. So you'll need to stay the course. And there'll be ups and downs. There'll be really tough times. There'll be good times. And we were really clear on that from the beginning. And as a result, uh, the investor base is incredibly supportive. Which, which again, is interesting. I had a great chat with um, Scotty and Stills from Bolter at the end of last year um, as they marked a year since the the, the, the sale. And, you know, they, they were pretty um, upfront about, you know, the pressures are on the business that's rapidly scaling and constantly needing new capital injection and things like that. And you, you, you do reach the point where, you know, we either have to dilute our existing shareholding to get the, the additional money in or you know, we can potentially run out of growth funds. Um, and that was one of the pressures. And, I, you know, again, I think they managed that terribly well um, and have continued their, their their growth since then. Other breweries that have been in the same position maybe don't seem to have handled that transition quite so well. Um, it, it, it sounds like you were very mindful of that. Um, you, you guys have been scaling fairly rapidly um, as well, but it, it sounds like you were a little bit more prepared for it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a, you've touched on a few things there, some that go to independence, which no doubt we'll get onto. It's very topical at the moment. But things like dilution, I mean, for, I guess, the, the management team and the shareholder base, um, dilution's not a big issue. I mean, if you're, as a small management team, um, if you're concerned about being able to control the vision of the company and the rollout of the company is because you've got X number of shares and as soon as you dilute, you lose control, you shouldn't be in the game, like, like frankly, it just shouldn't matter. Um, you know, you want your management investors to be aligned, but whether management has 50% or 20% or 1%, as long as they're comfortable in their own skin and they've got a relation, good relationship with the investor base, then really, who cares what the percentage is? Mm-hmm. I know it's always a problem for smaller breweries that um, there's a perception that equity control means control of the business, but I, I genuinely think that's the wrong way of looking at it. And it probably feeds into, I won't get ahead of ourselves if we're talking about independence, mm. but while you touch on Bolter, I look at that business and, again, it's a great example of who actually holds a share certificate. Sometimes it's not important. And, mm. you know, uh, you look at well, Gab's, you know, we were both there a couple of days ago yeah. and um, Bolter were there and they're putting out some tremendous beers. They've got a great local presence, a great local tap room. I think it's pretty clear that you look at... Uh, who actually really controls Bolter and it's, you know, it's Scotty and it's Stirls and it's that team that formed it initially. Now, whether or not they have the share certificate, sometimes it's not important as long as you can control what you're but giving back to the community. that's incredibly hard. Like, I, I, I honestly can't think of many breweries that have done that transition but kept the founder's stamp so cleanly on it. They seem to have really threaded a very fine needle the way that they've done it. And I think it's probably, you know, their personalities and all credit to them that they've managed to do that. It's, it's their personalities and it's their team around them. They've clearly, um, and I haven't seen their strategic plan, but they've clearly got a very clear vision for that business. They've managed to sell that into the, the bigger CUB entity and bring all the staff along for the ride. So what, why wouldn't CUB back it? Um, it's incredibly successful business. They've obviously got a, a great team and they're continuing to grow and go to places so you know ownership sometimes doesn't matter it Mm. really doesn't just before you do move uh, a little bit more into the ownership uh, side of things looking at the the brick lane brand and as somebody who is um incredibly impressed with the beers i think that you know the the beers coming out of your brewery are some of the most consistently good on style beers in in the country um and that is something that is you know, deserving of respect. But in the contemporary beer market, you know, beers that are just really solid don't get, um, you know, social media aflame uh, or anything like that. Um, So on on one hand, the beers are very good, but not necessarily the most hazy, crazy, you know, um, bells and whistles beers out there. And secondly, the brand has always suffered a little bit from, you know, being seen as a little bit too corporate. You know, you, you don't have that sort of couple of mates in a shed, you know, making beers that have, you know, created a, a social media, you know, frenzy and grown on that. Clearly, the fact you've been growing, you don't need that. But would you like a little bit more respect, you know? Oh, that's interesting. So, again, if you go back to the, the business model as it was at the beginning, um, we've got our values as everyone does, but... Mm really our core value is around inclusivity and it's bringing people into the beer community and also into the Brick Lane environment. So we are genuinely inclusive. We don't want to exclude people. And you know, one strategy going into the beer market is to effectively find a tribe and that's your focus and that's who you really want to Not your play to. competition brewing tribe. 
Not that tribe, but uh, <laughs> you, you want to find your uh, your group of people um, that you really want to target to, and that becomes your focus. And sometimes that means that not everyone can come along for the ride with you because they don't feel they're part of that that grouping. And there's no problem with that strategy. It's a good strategy. Uh, however, it's not our strategy. Ours was all about inclusivity, and by that it means not just a diverse shareholder base or a lot of diversity inclusivity in our internal staff, which is a huge focus for us, but it's also our beers and our branding. So when you look across our portfolio, we want to make sure that we've got a beer for everyone somewhere in our portfolio. So if they want to be included in beer, in a beer occasion, they can have a Brick Lane. And that can go from, say, a Brick Lane Draft, which is unashamedly playing in that classic space. Mm -hmm. It's, It's up against, you know, VB, it's up against Carlton Draft, we always try to bring something new. So, you know, it's a 4.9%. So we're giving people full value in terms of ABV. We're giving them a very clean, nice, bitter, fresh product that can compete with any of those majors any day. And we're giving them a price point that makes it value. So for about 50 bucks a case, it's hard to argue with the value. So you've got that at one end. Um, and then we've got, you know, more the entry-level craft like One Love, which is our biggest seller, the Pale Ale. And then we've got the more crafty ones, which, you know, we we didn't want to launch with, we've got a big brewery to fill. So mm. now that we've got this base load of core range, we can start to play in those spaces. So you would have seen the, you know, the Belgian beers and things yep. like, you know, the, the double red IPA. We've got three barrel age beers coming out, which are, um, well, they're in bourbon barrels and you know, ones with Amberana. And so we can really start to experiment and play with these things that have a much n- more niche market. But we're never going to target a particular niche. You know, we want more and more people drinking beer, however it might be. And we want to make sure that if people come to Brick Lane, it doesn't matter who you are, there's a beer for you. And that could be mistaken as being broad-based, but that's um, we're, we're happy to accept that. That's not an issue. So what's the attraction for some of those niches when you're a brewery that's making 16 million litres you know, across your own and your partner beers? You know, you're not going to sell a lot of barrel-aged beer, so what is the attraction in having that as a distraction? It's not a, a distraction. I guess um, what it is is showing that we can make a beer for everyone um, and we should be able to make a beer for everyone and everyone should be able to have a Brick Lane beer that works for them. So that's mm-hmm. the fundamental thing that underpins the brewery. The other side is if you're only making a few different beers, then um, you're not really experimenting as much as you could be and you would have seen the brewery that we've got. It's highly, highly flexible. We can produce any type of beer and, in fact, other things, you know, whether it's zero alcohol or seltzer or cider. It's highly flexible and we w- we should be and we want to be using that brewery to its maximum potential to make a lot of different beers. And the other side is even internally, it's just a lot of fun. You know, <laughs> um, Brewers never want to be bogged down with the one beer all day, every day. And part of the beauty is we've now got a diverse portfolio, but we've also with the beers we make for others, did the count the other day, and we've made over 200 different beers in less than three years. So we've got this huge diversity across the entire portfolio. Is that including the partners? Yeah, that's right. But uh, I guess brewing some of the beers for your partners would give you and and, and your staff, you know, that ability to play and develop and sharpen. Why do that yourself? You know, is it a halo over the Brick Lane brand to show that you, you can be as cool as the other kids? No, it's, it's nothing really to do with that. Um, you know, it's not a halo thing. It's not an ego thing. Um, we don't feel that we need to do that. It's more about showing that beer can be 
great and wonderful no matter where you're drinking mm-hmm. and we feel that we should be playing in all those spaces and as long as we can bring something new in each of those spaces then we'll do it and it doesn't really matter what it is and it could be mid-strength it could be draft um, it could be zero alk or it could be you know 13 percent barrel age beers um, they're all all beers that are challenging they're all beers that we want to make sure that we can produce either the best in the category or something new. So it's a core part of our business. And how hard then is it to play in the same space, you know, that you're positioning draft where you do have the mega um, breweries that have so much extra capacity that they can, you know, really target that. But then also, you know, I, I was really struck when the ACCC talked about the Asahi sale and talking about, you know, that there is a point that it's marketing and advertising dollars that matter in that space much more than the beer. You know, at six, even at 16 million litres, you're not in the space that you can really invest in brand the way that those great northerns, you know, pure blondes, um, you know, that, that mainstream end, end of the market can. Yeah, it's a, it's always a difficult one. And um, once you start to get more and more into the, I guess call it the classic category, it becomes more and more important to have um, national distribution and as part of that, clearly the big part of the market is major retail. So mm. getting shelf space is a challenge because a retailer is looking for hitting hurdle rates, so volume turnover, and they're also looking at their margin and also the consumer margin. So once you start to play in that space, um, the price and your production um, flexibility um, and efficiencies become incredibly important. So we know that it's just a matter of economics that we can't produce a beer at the same cost as a beer that comes out of Yatala, for example. Mm. With the type of technology we've got and the scale and efficiencies we've got, we're not that far out of the league, but we're still losing a tiny bit compared to those guys. And you either have to give that up in margin or in reduced advertising and marketing, usually both. So what we try to do is look at that and enter that market if we can bring something new. And the way we do that... Bricklane Draft, for example, you, know, you can go into the category with a, a very similar design as others, which you, know, you see it all through the market. We decided to, you know, simple things, but go with a black can, go with something stripped back, go with a really simple message, which is just draft and it's refreshing. Um, and we've supported that through some assets that we've got and people we've got in the business that don't actually cost us a lot of money. And um, if we can do that, get people to buy into the quality of the liquid, a slightly different experience and do it for know, two or three dollars more than the competitors a case, then we think there's a chance there and, and so far it's it's working. Like it's a fairly high volume beer for us now. Well that's good. And what have you learned about brand? Because I know that <laughs> I think in three even before you'd opened, I think you'd had two brands you know, sort of two brand concepts uh, before you even sort of were, were in market and we've seen the brand constantly evolve since then. Has that been, you know, harder almost harder getting the brand right than the beer right? I mean, it's an interesting one, and it all starts for, from, I guess, what your purpose is and mm. what your values are, and we've always had, from the very beginning, it's all been about inclusivity and community, and that's, um, you know, with the partners that we brew for, as we just talked about, with the style of beers we make, the people that we employ, our investor base, so that's been a constant from day one. Uh, with our actual visual representation of the brand, it's been, it's been pretty much the same since we launched our first beer out mm. of the brewery three years ago. And in fact, I don't think we've changed our, our one love at all. It's the same place. Okay, yep. So nothing's changed in three years. Uh, the year before that, we did some trial brewing out of Hawkers and uh, I guess that brand was still evolving. So mm. we you know, we had some temporary um, Brick Lane brands there just to get some beer into market to trial it. 
it wasn't our final brand. It was two beers in a bottle. Um, so, yeah, it evolved through that period. And okay. We used that period to really try and come up with a visual representation of what we are, and we're pretty close there. It'll continue to refine over time. And that's what I find fascinating is, you know, there's the saying that, you know, as soon as you make something idiot-proof, they'll build a better idiot. And no matter how much you workshop a brand and an idea and a concept, as soon as it hits market, somebody sees something in it that completely changes what that thing is and you lose control of the brand as, as it hits the market and they bring a little bit of themselves to it. You know, how hard is it to you know, come up with ideas that resonate with that inclusive audience that you, you, you're, you're looking at? Yeah, it's, it's something that's interesting because you can't, you can't do it alone. <laughs> so we've got a great um, marketing team internally. Um, I mean, you know, you know Zoe and, mm. um, you know, we've got Greg and Tasha and Peter and they're all from a pretty diverse background. And then we've got our brewers as well. So we bring a whole lot of people into our, I guess, our NPD process, which is developing new beers and then how they're going to look and feel and how they're going to be visually represented. Fortunately, um, for us, we've got, such a strong team, we come up with a really tight internal brief that then we send out to creatives. Um, fortunately for the team, I, I, I don't work directly with the creatives <laughs> because um, they, they think on a much different level to me and uh, maybe uh, I'm a bit too much friction when I deal with creatives, as, as we all know, um, internally. So we've got this tremendous team that's able to take the ideas and concepts and then bring it back in terms of a brand. The, the other part is, I guess... Um, as your brand grows and improves and gets cut through, um, whether it's, you know, for Brick Lane, we've got this Brick Lane strap. Um, we've also got our B. Like, these sort of logos and devices meant nothing mm. on day one. And it takes a while before people can build it up and identify with it. And now that we've got these core consistent things within the brand, we've got a lot more freedom to bring in a lot more art and design and creativity because mm. we've got a couple of things we can cling to. Now, we didn't have that on day one, which meant everything had to be consistent and same day in, day out. Um, but now we've got the freedom to have a lot more play, which is which is good fun. But I'm endlessly fascinated by that, you know, when you look at something like Great Northern, that there is just something about the brand that they've created there because it speaks to people who, you know, like that outdoors area and, you know, this vague idea of this Great Northern brewery. And then you saw Lion come out with their Me Too, which was the, you know, man and the you know the, the cowboy and his dog trying to and it just didn't exactly the same beer if you gave it to anybody they wouldn't pick the difference between those two beers but there's something about a brand that resonates when cost and liquid and look don't matter um it's you know it, it's almost disappointing when you love beer that something completely extraneous can be more important yeah, it's, it's a really tough one and, you know, the brands are one part but without a really good liquid and giving good value back to people, your brand's not going to work. So, um, you know, Great Northern, it's a, it's a brilliant insight. It's about, you know, everyone wants to be, have an experience in a different place and I think the whole fishing North Queensland thing is, you know, a place to a market but it's also very accessible. Everyone's had an experience on the ocean. Everyone loves the freedom of escape of being out in a boat, whether or not you do it or not. Everyone understands the concept. Potentially with Iron Jack, walking a dusty trail with a drover's dog is not as accessible, so mm. maybe that's part of the challenge. They spend a lot of money getting that, you know, sort of refining that insight, though, and, and that's the thing. You know, I, I, having watched the Great Northern brand over a long time, I don't think all of those things that you now identify, and, you know, not you, but everybody now identifies with it being fishing and outdoors. When it first launched, that wasn't exactly what they were going for. And it's almost 
evolved to that. You know, they they had something that resonated, and then they had to go back and work out what was resonating, and then that became the thing that they were selling. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, Great Northern, they tried to come up with a knockoff in a different way, and it just didn't work. Yeah, and I mean, the other challenge which you've sort of touched on is when you tie yourself to a sense of place, that can always be become really difficult. And you know, Great Northern have obviously tied themselves to Northern Queensland. Which have they though? Because when you know it's the beer for up here or the beer from up here, depending on which part of it. So it, it's it's nebulous enough that you can make your own north um, in, yeah, in a way. It is. Well, it was, it was a beer from up here, and it's yeah. now for up here. Um, but regardless, when you look at any of their marketing, their advertising, mm. their branding on the bottle, it takes you to Cairns. It yeah. takes you to North Queensland. Uh, with our beers, we try not to tie them to a sense of place, but rather to a moment or an insight. Uh, so if you take, or for example, in the same space, we've got a beer called Backyarder that we released in summer. Um, and our our take on the inside of a place where people want to be, um, we said, well, it's the backyard. And whether that's your backyard, your balcony, whatever it is. So we, we tied it to a moment that everyone has access to. It's accessible. Everyone's invited. It's not exclusive. You don't need to spend a few thousand dollars to go on a fishing trip to Cairns, um, you can walk onto your balcony or into your backyard and it's simplistic, it's a deck chair and you can sit on a $20 deck chair. So I guess that's our version of the same insight as Great Northern. So you you can compete with the big brands. You don't need these enormous campaigns to do it as long as you start from a genuine insight and nail the creative and also the beer itself mm. and can hit a price point. It's all those things. It's holistic. But the, the independents can really compete in that area, I believe. It's interesting because the first time you reached out to me before you'd even opened, um, you know, when I asked about Brick Lane, if I'm remembering correctly, you said that the idea behind Brick Lane was every city has a Brick Lane, so you're not stuck to any one city. It can yeah. so still that sense of place, but that seems to have moved a little bit away from that urban, gritty laneway feel that was almost the idea at the start. That it's a little bit more. It can be anywhere in the in in the city or in the place. From from what I just heard you talking about, um, you know, the, the backyarder. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, the concept still holds true. Mm. So um, we are an urban brewery. We're not in a city in the sense of some other brands that are heavily heavily tied to an inner city location. It was more about every every there's every city in the world. There's every town in the world. Yeah, Paul Kelly song, every yep. every city, you know, without the other expletives. But um, it, it's an accessible place to everyone. Everyone lives or has access or interacts with the city and it doesn't matter what city it is. So that all still remains completely true. And we still tie ourselves to that concept. Um, but, you know, we, we can push it out from there. So we haven't gone into, um, you know, into the surf or into the hills, but you know, who's to say we won't? Mm. At, at the moment, everything has some sort of urban or city tie-back, um, but it's not a particular city. You know, We are Melbourne born and bred, um, but the same insights and um, the same feeling applies no matter where you are. Now, moving on to the, the, the more topical discussion that we were having, uh, it come from the Facebook group, um, where you know, we, we've recently seen, you know, Claire did a great story looking at, um, you know, private label beers and we've seen Coles and Woolworths do it. There was a great discussion about what it means. I'm I'm fascinated because, as as I said, Brick Lane is making some of the best liquid in the country. You make some for yourself. You make some for 
partners who are small craft breweries that are scaling up, but then you also make beer for, you know, big retailers. I know you can't talk too much about some of some of your partnerships, but it does become a very interesting prism for what brand and independence and you know ownership and intent mean in in this brewing industry because the same beer quality is coming out of the same place. And yet once you put that label on, it can completely change the emotional attachment to that. Yeah, and, and that's right. And I, I'm probably a little bit different to some of the others in the industry at the moment that I see there's an absolute place for everything. And um, I think all beers that are, are well-made and are there for a certain purpose and deliver deliver something back to either an existing beer consumer or people trying to get into beer uh, have a place and are worthwhile and should be championed and supported. So... That could be, um, and we, you know, we brew for the three major supermarket chains in Australia, I guess. And um, our view there is, if we can produce the highest quality beer for the category and the consumer thereafter, and give people a good experience, then it's not a bad thing. Um, I think it it gives people a message that craft or entry craft, as most that's where most of them play. You know, mm. um, to be open about it, but it gets people into that entry level of craft and. Once they're in there, then hopefully they can start exploring a little bit more widely. So I think the the supermarkets do have a very valuable role to play there. Um, but at, on the other end, you know, there's the smaller emerging breweries that, you know, are hugely important because they, and they're usually independent, um, so they ha- have a role in innovation. They have a role in excitement, in buzz, in doing things differently, in bringing new styles to the market. Um I probably can talk about some of our partners to illustrate some of this. So uh, the, one of the first partners we ever had was Hop Nation. And, um, you know, Sam and Dunk um, brewed quite a few of their beers down at the brewery and um, because of the reason that they ran out of capacity. Um, and apart from which, we've got a whole bunch of technology in there that they didn't have. So um, whether it's, you know, cross-flow filtration or it's, you know, pasteurisation or it's the ability to pack in different formats – um, these are all very valuable things to an emerging brewer, and um, and that they couldn't afford them, come close to affording them on, on their level without uh, a partner like yourself. No, that's right. And what um, you know, success for both us and um, Hop Nation was always going to be if we can help them, you know, increase their portfolio and their presence and their traction. Then, you know, success is they'll leave us and you know, go and build a bigger brewery and they went and bought Mornington and we're still best best friends with them and, you know, at some point they'll probably have SKUs that they want to bring back. But to us, I think that was a hugely um, valuable contribution that Brick Lane has made and Hop Nation has made in that we could help grow that craft brand. Um, then you look at other ends of the scale and I look at, you know, we've, we've talked about Bolter and what they've done, but, you know, you can look at, um, you know, Stone and Wood, you know, the, you know they're, they're an independent but they still give a huge amount back to the community in mm. terms of their ingrained foundation, their support of local. Um, they've revolutionised the industry with Pacific Ale as a private. Um, you know, got Gage Roads, which is listed, and they've transformed the industry in winning Optus Stadium, and they've brought a whole bunch of other things to the market. They've shown you can basically own an area that they have of WA in very short time to compete against the majors. So th- there's so many different moving pieces in craft, and I think... Um, or independence, however you want to call it, but it all comes back to being able to produce, you know, a really great product, either at small scale or large scale, but consistently of a high quality and at a good price point. And if we play a little part in that, that's a great thing. Stepping outside of the, 
you know, the enthusiasts, you know, the, the people that we speak to, you know, on, on the, the members of Facebook groups and endlessly debate the minutiae of these sorts of things. Do you think the, um, you know, even people who enjoy craft beer have made the transition from the mainstream lagers to, you know, even golden ales or, you know, um, summer ales at that level. Do you think there is a level of care from them where the beer is made or who owns it or that it changes in any way based on that? I'm not sure if the ownership is the key factor. Uh, I, I really don't believe that. I think it's more about what is the brewery giving back to the community and you know, again, if you look at that Bolter example, they're genuinely giving something back to their community um, outside of who holds a share certificate. I think a bunch of other breweries are continuing to do the same thing and you know, touched on Gage Roads. I think they give back. Uh, then you've got small emerging breweries that are that are private and um, doing incredibly well and you know, it might be owned by two or three people. They're giving back. The key thing is as long as you're giving back and you're giving the consumer a great experience, then... I really don't see the independence in itself as being the determining factor. Now, that doesn't take away from the importance of having an independent beer movement Mm. um, because there's a whole lot of things that smaller emerging breweries don't have access to that a big brewery does. And it's not just production, it's resources, it's the year of the, the government, it's how you go about getting grants, it's how you go about setting up your back end, your financial systems, your compliance, truth in labelling. All these things are incredibly expensive if you have to do off your own back and that's the value of something like the IBA. You know, they, they provide a whole bunch of services that you can't afford to replicate, you know, 540 times over for every brewery. So there's still a hugely important role for an independent brewery community but I don't think that ownership in sense of the share certificate is a determining factor of what is great for the community. What is the next phase for craft beer, um, or for, for, for even for beer? Because I mean, I, I have this feeling that the word craft means less and less anymore. It's it's almost like premium or imported. Um, a couple of years ago, where an imported beer could still be made here, or it could be imported, um, and then there was a whole discussion around that. And you know, we are in a in a situation where people are drinking less. They're drinking less beer. And yet there is so much more fracturing of the brewing market. Where are you guys looking to do at the next couple of years um, going for beer? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, you know, we know at macro level beer is declining. Uh, that's being driven largely by the classic beer um, segment of the market. Which incidentally was a market that was based on if you had one, you had six in a sitting. Well, and it's based on that, but it's also based on incredible brand loyalty. Uh, people don't change. So... If you take some of those core beers, you know, your VB, your Colton's drafts, people sit on those and they're not prepared to move. Now, that part of the market is ageing. The younger demographic, they love to try different things. They're experimental. So you can no longer hang your hat on one particular beer. You constantly need to be bringing new things to the community. And as long as you do that, that part of the market is growing and it's growing significantly. So, you know, if I look at, you know, whatever it is, 500 breweries in the market, there's talk about is it too many I say make it 1,500. Mm-hmm. You know, there is so many different opportunities in the market at the moment to grow. We're seeing it... To uh, grow or to exist? To grow. Um, okay. To genuinely to grow. Um, there's a role for breweries that want to exist in a, a small micro level um, and service their local community on a small scale and, you know, pay their own wages and the wages of a few people around them. And that's exciting and every town should have one. I, I think it's brilliant. 
Um, but there's also a next wave of craft, I guess, which is starting to eat away at some of what has historically been big breweries markets and whether that's mid-strength, whether it's classic, um, whether it's adjacency. So, you know, and there's some really exciting stuff at the moment. You know, you've you've covered seltzer in a lot of depth, but um, like, who would have thought with a mass scale product like seltzer, the independents can really almost lead the way, you know, um, at least in the Australian market. And the other... You think? Well, if you look at the volumes that some of the independents are doing in seltzer, um, it may not always be the way because, you know, you're going to have naturally over time things like white claw and whatever dominate if you go on yep. sort of global trends. But the early phase, the independents, I think, have picked up a pretty reasonable market share of that space. And the other one, which, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hugely excited about is the low and zero ALK. Mm. Um, again, look at what the independents are doing. Look at um, Heaps Normal, Nort, you know, Big Drop out of the UK, um, a few more coming onto the market. Um, you know, Heaps Normal I can talk about because we, we brew that with those guys. Um, tremendous group of people. They didn't exist 12 months ago. Uh, and now they've got one of the leading roles in the category. Now, who would have thought people from nowhere with, you know, no big amount of capital behind them, um, starting from scratch 12 months ago, could now have a position where they're range na- nationally producing big volumes. Um, obviously, we can support them because we've got the infrastructure and we can do it at a competitive level for them. These are the areas where the smaller independent brands and businesses can move so much quicker than the larger ones. And there'll always be these opportunities there. So I'm, I'm hugely excited about what we can do. But it's interesting, you even say like moving huge volumes and, you know, given that you guys are 8 million litres and they're not 100% of your volume, yeah. it's huge craft volumes um, of a product. And uh, the, the article that you shared um, on LinkedIn recently, you know, referenced James Atkinson pointing out that, you know, even um, CUB's biggest zero alcohol beer was point you know, 0.16% of their the entire beer market. Again, I've got nothing wrong against low alk, but I just think the hype and the bullishness far exceeds where I see the market demand will ever reach, um, particularly when, you know, th- there isn't a category of beer that has had more hype around it in the mainstream media for the last 12 months, and yet we're still only seeing the major retailers talk about 1% or 200% growth off very, very small bases. Um, Seltzer was growing at 9 Hundred, you know, a thousand percent. So, you know, I, I think it's got a role. I think it's got a place. I think we'll see it grow, but I just don't see it becoming a major part of the category. I, I, I do. Like, I, I really see a future in it. And again, if you look at um, where it is at the moment, these brands that didn't exist twelve months ago now have national ranging. Mm. That's in a market where getting national ranging is getting tighter and tighter and harder and harder. It's, it's pretty incredible. The other thing that it's it's bringing, which is revolutionary, is quality cues and genuine flavour, genuine body, genuine aroma. It's giving a real beer experience rather than something that's just watered down. And I think it's not only uh, looking at it as a, a zero alk. There's a blurring of category now mm. from zero through one, two, three, four percent. So what these beers are doing to me is they're telling people that it's actually okay to look for flavour and not necessarily for ABV. And that, that sits in with where the market's heading. You know, but Nobody says that about soft drink. Like, you know, there are craft soft drinks and things like that. And, you know, I don't know what a zero-alk beer experience is setting itself up to be when no one talks about a soft drink experience, 
maybe it's my and, and like I always qualify this by saying that it's my age and it's my vintage and it's you know the perception I've built up around what beer is but beer has some level of alcohol in as part of its promise once you take that out then it it, it opens the floodgates to drink anything else that doesn't have to be beer flavored you know, I look at it a little bit differently so for me I mean alcohol is a part of historically for a number of reasons the fermentation process made the drink safe it was easy to transport and it gave the the benefits of alcohol the sociability so there's a whole raft of things but at at its heart beer is still you know lots of delicious malted barley it's beautifully flavored hops it's structure it's balance it's a clean drink it's a refreshing drink it's got packs of flavor i would much rather drink a zero alk beer than a can of coke um I think there's a whole raft of reasons why you drink beer. Alcohol is one component and it's a very important component, but it's not the only component. And I see a big role for these beers coexisting. And I don't think we're necessarily talking to people that don't drink alcohol. I think we're talking to people who uh, potentially want to moderate, potentially don't want to drink every day, potentially have something else on later in the day, but enjoy the sensation of drinking all that flavour in, you know, in a cool, crisp way on the balcony after mowing the lawn. You That's know? why I've got the, um, the the hot water there because I've got all of the flavour, well, a lot of the flavour without any of the calories. If I'm not going to have alcohol, I just that, that's the thing for me. I'd, if, if I don't want the alcohol, it's not just the alcohol I don't want. It's the calories and some of the you know the things that even zero alk beer can't deliver on. Yeah, well, I'm I'm prepared to, prepared to take on a couple of calories with zero <laughs> alk for the for the flavour and the experience, okay. and I, I genuinely have huge excitement about this category. Mate, we'll uh, check in and again in you know, two or three years and see where the market's going. Absolutely. And, uh, as always, I'm quite happy to be uh, to hear I told you so uh, for, for something. I like won't this. say that to you, Matt, but um, <laughs> I, I, yes, uh, you will. I can tell you we're making a lot of it, and it's um it's, it's tasting delicious, and it's only getting better. Beautiful, Paul Bowker. Thank you very much for joining us for this conversation all about Brick Lane. Thanks, you, Matt. Good to be here. And that was Paul Bowker. If you get the chance, make sure you look out for the Pink Boots Rye Pale Ale that was brewed at Brick Lane. It is an absolute cracker. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Crime Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Crime Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and they are also our partners in premium beer content. 